Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Charles Vivian, Managing Director and Group Portfolio Lead at North Highland. Charles leads North Highland's UK and Northeastern US practices, a total of a $100 million consulting business. While you might be expecting the typical consulting career journey here, Charles has had the complete opposite and has had a hugely varied career that has spanned working for a global consultancy, taking time out to found his own startup, moving back into consultancy at the boutique end, and then working his way up to where he is today at North Highland. Outside of work, Charles has undertaken some phenomenal adventures, and we talk about those today, including climbing Mont Blanc, running the Marathon de Sable, the world's toughest foot race. And in fact, the reason that there was a slight delay on releasing this episode was that straight after our interview, Charles was flying out to trek across the Arctic. Charles's approach to growing a business, growing your career and enjoying a life were fascinating. And no matter where you are in your journey, there'll be something in here for you. We cover so many interesting topics in this conversation, including Charles' startup journey, what he learned from failing in a startup, and his advice to others thinking of going out on their own. The importance of culture 
when it comes to building a consulting firm and how North Highland have created a culture that is both open and supportive while also welcoming and encouraging challenge from all levels of the firm. The differences and similarities when it comes to working across the UK and the US and the importance of understanding the culture of the region you're working in and how Charles fits all of these adventures like his trip to the Arctic into his busy schedule and his advice for others looking to balance work with doing more of the things they enjoy outside of it. I really enjoyed this conversation with Charles. His unique perspective, having worked across such a a broad range of businesses, gave some fantastic insights, and I know you will get a lot from this conversation. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Charles Vivian. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. Morning, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for for having me to your office today. And I always like when I get recommendations from former guests for people I should speak to. So for my listeners' benefit, my former guest, Jo Miles, I asked her, who should I speak to? And you were the name at the top of her list. So okay, thank you, Joe. Really looking forward to this. Um, And I know from our conversations, you actually know a few of my guests. So that might come out through our conversation today. Now, normally I start on the consulting side, and we will get to it quickly. But you just said, and I want to find out about it, and I stopped myself before the interview, you're flying to the Arctic tomorrow. And (laughs) we will dive in later to hobbies and outside of work. But but what what's that all about? It's my, as my wife says, it's my third midlife crisis. So uh, yeah, flying up into the Arctic Circle tomorrow, we are doing a 120-kilometer um, trek across something called the Finnmarks Vida Plateau. So right up in the Arctic Circle, sleeping out under tents, so minus 20 to minus 40. Six of us doing it. We aspire to get to the North Pole in a couple of years' time. So this is a training expedition. Um, so yeah, this time tomorrow, I will be uh, in the middle of nowhere. So that sounds amazing. And last year, I had one goal, which was to climb Snowdon, and that pales in comparison. How, how long are you going for? So we go tomorrow, we're back a week's time. So we're out wow. trekking for five to six days. Yeah. So I'm going to ask about actually how you set up for a trip like that. And like I said to you before we started, we'll dive into different bits. But in our industry, and I think in all corporate life now, particularly with phones and just email being ever-present, yeah. many people... I think rely too much on it and almost let it come into their lives too fast. So, you know, people work on evenings, weekends. It's one thing going on holiday and maybe setting your out of office and checking your emails a couple of times. It's another going to the Arctic and I assume you can't even take a phone. How, if at all, have you had to prepare for that trip to be able to go completely off the grid, given your role for that week's time? Yeah, I mean, it's probably easier than people imagine. So, I've delegated a lot of what I do to other people. Just been doing that now, actually, before you came in. So being clear about the governance cycles we run next week, who covers what, where key decisions go to. We've looked at what might come up that might need some support. I've got a good team here, so that's covered. And actually, I'm really looking forward to not being contactable. The slightly disappointing thing is there is a fair chance there'll be a mobile signal where we go. Um, <laughs> really? Uh, the, the bigger issue is because of the cold, the battery on your phone dies very quickly. Yeah. So you actually sandwich your phone between two hand warmers to keep the battery life up. <laughs> I, I uh, met a friend for lunch on Monday who's just climbed Everest. And wow. he said right up until the edge of the death zone, he had a mobile signal from China Mobile. So there's very few pieces you can go, places you can go that you can get away from it. So, But uh, yeah, that's how I'm set up. It might be exactly the same answer. And this is because I think this is a, a great piece of advice for for people who are frankly even thinking of taking a holiday because I, I've worked w- with many people before where they will take a holiday, but they'll still check emails periodically. And I yeah. think for some people, actually, the benefit is just being off the grid. Yeah. From colleagues, because I'm sure colleagues have asked you about it, is there any difference at 
your level as managing director versus someone who is more junior in the firm? You know, some people might say, oh, it's easier because you're managing director. Conversely, they might say it's harder. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Well, I think you have to learn yourself. It's a very personal choice. So actually, if I'm going on a holiday and I, I do have mobile connections or email connections, I will check it every day because I don't like the the bow wave you have leading up to a holiday and then coming back to a huge mm. inbox because I never get to it. So actually, I prefer to stay in contact and check things. And it just that actually keeps my stress levels, if that's the right word, in check. So I tend to do that rather than just leave it for a couple of weeks. So that works for me and I'm good with that. I think you've got to figure out what works for you. Here at North Island, we've got a very supportive culture. So we don't expect people to work whilst they're on leave. There's no expectation around that. And we do help people to be able to switch off and, and other people pick things up. So that's kind of our philosophy. And for me, I like to keep in touch. So. Well, I look forward to finding out how the trip goes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And maybe we'll do another one of these and you can tell us or, and you'll be doing uh, the North Pole like you wanted. Indeed. But I did say we might come back to hobbies. Yeah, I know you've got sure. many if we have time towards the end. But why don't we go all the way back to the beginning? Sure, because sure. I know you didn't come into consulting through the, the typical graduate route and actually had a career as a surveyor before that yeah. chartered surveyor. What led you to make that move? How did you move into Deloitte and consulting? Yeah, good question. So I've kind of been in, in and out of consulting several times as a bit of a, a roundabout type career. My parents steered me quite heavily. So um, I grew up on a farm. I like the outdoor life. I love nature and geography. And actually, I went and read a degree in land economy. So that and my intent was to be a rural charter of land manager and really look after big country estates. Partway through my degree, I realized that there was more money to be made in commercial property. So I switched and started looking at that side of things. And then I yeah, graduated and uh, did my professional exams and became a chartered surveyor. When I graduated in the 90s, the commercial property market was very depressed. So actually, whilst we got jobs and did the graduate training, the opportunities and the potential didn't seem to be there. And I didn't have the life experience to see the cycles that would, would come in due course. And my parents were always keen that I got a professional qualification. So there was quite a bit of nature and nurture in my decision. 97, property market was down. I had a lunch with a friend in St. James's Park. We opened up the job section of the Times newspaper and there was a big double page spread for Deloitte. And it said, you know, global careers. And there was a picture of an Olympic athlete throwing a javelin. And I said, I'd, I'd love to work there. And he said, you'll never get in. They only employ people with first from Oxbridge. And I had a bet with him that I could get a job there. And I went along, applied, went along to the interviews. And I really liked the environment at Deloitte. So the, the level of the talent pool was very high performing, the global opportunities. I do think it was a consulting heyday. So I'd say, you know, 96 to 2003, it was quite an immature industry, great opportunities to travel around the world. There wasn't the sophistication on that, the, the client side or the buying side. So I went through the interview process with Deloitte. There was an economic upside as well. Uh, they offered me a job and I thought, why not? And um, it's, it's, you know, it's a decision I don't, don't regret. So that was kind of my first move. It was very much driven by a bit of a bet. But actually, when I look more into the sector and the opportunities, that really appealed to me. And was it, to your friend's point around, you know, they only employ Oxbridge first. Yeah. Was that the case? And if so, how did you, coming from your, where yeah. you were in your yeah. career yeah. so far, manage to break the mould, if you like, and, and get in there? There was probably more of a blend there than I anticipated. Actually, some of your other guests had worked there as well. That's how I know them. And, you know, they're not, they're not from that background. So there was a more, uh, more of a blend of backgrounds uh, when I arrived than I anticipated. So, so that, was, that was good. 
And I think the one thing I took from my time in surveying was it taught me very high professional standards. So it being a very traditional and old school profession, it taught you about excellence in your deliverables and your your outputs to clients and how to advise clients. So I had a set of core skills that stood me in in really good stead when I went there. So it was it was less hard to fit in than I expected. Just before I go on to to actually place you there and, and some of the skills within that, yeah. what was the bet and what did you get? What did you win? Uh, <laughs> it was a lunch. Oh, very so, nice. um, yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Uh, I mean, I, I tell the story because you never, I mean, your career sometimes happened on purpose and sometimes happened by chance. And for me, that's an example of sort of chance and uh, it was a good thing. So, And where did you, help me here, what level did you join Deloitte? At? Yeah, good question. So Deloitte had... Analyst and consultant were the bottom two levels. Typically, a consultant had two years' experience, and I went in as a consultant, and I'd done four years as a chartered surveyor. And then, yeah, progressed quite quickly because the consulting market was booming. So it actually felt like you were getting promoted every year. So progression was quite rapid. But it felt like the right level to go, and I didn't feel like I was a graduate. I had some experience, but consulting is a distinct skill, and I had to learn that. So it felt good. And did you have any tensions or questions? And the reason I ask that is, with other guests I've spoken to, and you, like you say, you know, former guests like Don Morehouse, I know you, you know very well. But I think, especially at the junior stages of your career, there can be a concern about taking a step back. And you know, I've I've said before, I don't know if I would have taken a step backwards at certain stages in my career. And obviously, you know, that's backwards to go forwards. But did you have any concerns at the time around that? And if so, how did you make yourself comfortable that? this wasn't a backward step, this was a, an investment for, for the future. Yeah, I mean, at the time, because hindsight's one thing, but at the time, I was doubling my salary. So it felt, you know, in that regard, like a mm. big step forward. There was the opportunity to, as I say, play in what I thought was a bigger and better talent pool that would grow and develop me. Uh, the client base interested me and there was global travel. So it absolutely felt like a step forward in terms of opportunity. Probably felt like a slightly sideways move in terms of, of, of level, but I wasn't worried about that. And I think as long as you make those decisions consciously and you know it might feel like a backwards or sideways step, but the purpose in doing that and where it might take you, I think that's good. I don't think you can do it reluctantly or with regret because I think that would be a, a sort of a negative mindset to take into it. So I think be conscious, be positive and, and see, realize why you're doing it and where it's going to take you. So yes, I've, and, and, and you know, have courage. So we may come back to your time at Deloitte because I'm, I'm conscious we have a limited amount of time yeah, and that we sure, have tons sure, to pack sure, in. Sure. And that might be something we come back to, that sure. climbing, because you mentioned you, you climb very quickly. I'm keen to almost go to the other end of the Deloitte yeah. story. And actually, you left Deloitte and you ended up founding a, a startup, Zogix, which we'll talk yeah. about. It would be great to understand more about that career decision point. What was it that led you to leave Deloitte? Where did you go? What did you do in that intervening period? Yes, that was a big decision. I, Whilst at Deloitte, I'd spent a lot of time working with clients on their own startups, so doing a lot of work with corporate startups, so Vodafone management, to name a few. And I really enjoyed building something that had an impact and uh, an impact that might outlast you. And, and I particularly enjoyed doing the product side of that. And I was doing a piece of work in Bracknell with two colleagues who were actually the guys that I then founded Zogix with. Okay. And every day we'd drive up and down the M3 and we'd discuss and debate this business we were going to build. And you know, the more time we spent on this project, the, 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 our thoughts crystallized. And then it came to the point where we said, right, we're, 
we're going to do are we going to do this or we're not going to do it and in fact all my key career points both moving out of surveying and leaving Deloitte my father has been my biggest counsel and you know in this case I rang him up and he said well you've got nothing to lose something you've always wanted to do now is a good time to do it, it was pre-family my wife was working so I had limited uh, responsibilities so it was a, it was a relatively easy decision to make at that point in time I knew I loved building things I knew it was an itch I wanted to scratch so actually, it was a big decision, but it felt like a real, relatively easy, straightforward and obvious decision. To that point around, it was an easy decision, but it was still a decision to make. Yeah, yeah. In that conversation with your father, what I'm imagining you putting together a sort of for and against. What were some of those arguments you were making for both sides? What were those challenges that you you wanted your father's counsel on to to give you that final reassurance that you would you know you were making the right move? I think I mean there's a little bit about downside and safety net. So, you know, if this all goes wrong, what, do, what have you got to lose? So I'm lucky I've got a, a, a supportive supportive family. As I said, my wife was working. She was a chartered surveyor as well. We didn't have any dependents. So there was a little bit about, well, I can do this for a period of time. And if it doesn't work out, all goes wrong. Worst case scenario, I might lose some money, a bit of time in my career on a career ladder, but I'm gaining a, an invaluable experience. And actually, if we talk about the, the back end of my startup, that experience has allowed me to get to where I am today, and without it, I wouldn't have. So there was a there's a bit about the experience I was gaining that was I saw saw as an up in upside. There was something tangible, but I might not make millions and be able to retire, but I was gaining an experience that would have value to me at some point in my career. So there's a bit of balancing those things. What's the worst that could happen, and what what will I get out of it? You know, as a minimum. So I kind of I've kind of looked at those sides of things. That was, those are probably the big things. And thinking now where you are or the journey since then because I'm sure people have come to you and said I'm thinking you're doing something similar what's your thoughts are those the key questions and key advice you give them or are there any are there any other areas or any other concerns that you find people commonly coming to you with that you have yeah. to counsel them on yeah I'm quite a dangerous person to be around because if someone comes to me and says I want to go and start my own business I will say absolutely go for it so my my insta- <laughs> so I'm a big risk taker and my, I got a calculated risk but I'm a big risk taker and my so my instant reaction will be great Go for it, and and then then we'll talk a little bit more about the detail of it. And I think um, what, what I frequently do the day the, the week. So as we will talk about, my my business failed, and actually it was a pretty acrimonious ending, and I lost my life savings, and it was an emotional low point for me as well. But one thing I did the week it all wrapped up was I wrote down my lessons learned, and the the seventy lessons learned from that startup, and I share that with anyone that comes to me and and says they're thinking of starting a business, and it's very raw but it gets the absolute essence of trust, relationships, product, customers, fun, you know, and it talks a little bit about the cycle they'll go through. So quite often I'll share that with them and say, have a read, let's have a chat, make sure you're ready for this. And, and, and you know, the thing about starting your own business is the highs are off the chart. So you don't experience that working for someone else, but the lows are also off the chart. You don't experience that working for someone else. So you've got to prepare yourself for that roller coaster. And, you know, when you, when you do step out, Yes, you have uh, co-founders and you have boards to help you, but you don't have that support and safety net that you get in employment. And if if others aren't driving, you know, if you're not driving the business, it's rare that others are doing it for you. So the the accountability that comes with it is it, it's significant and massive. It's exhilarating, but it's also a big weight to carry. So I talk to them about, and this is what happened to me. This is my story. It may not be the same for you, but beware some of the things these things might be. So make sure you're ready for that. 
So I usually just talk to them about that and, and, and but encourage them to do it. I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, you only live once, so seizing your dreams and going for it. Yeah, that, and if it can't be shared, don't worry. But when someone says, when you say something like, I have a list of 70 things yeah. that I learned, is that is that something that you have available to share with people? Can it be shared? We can uh, take it off, we can take it. Bit, bits of it can. Of, I mean, some of it's quite personal. So yeah. I had a, I mean, it was, we had a very, very difficult um final six months of my business. So some of it's sort of raw and quite personal. I mean, if people want to get in touch, I'm happy to talk to them about it. There's bits of it we can share, um, share potentially, but yeah. Fantastic. Well, we can pick that up yeah. after this um, yeah, and anything absolutely. we can share, great. Like you say, I'm sure yeah. people will happily get in touch with you. And I think I'll take your direction here because you made the point and I'm really interested in exploring it around what has you took from that startup world that's helped you in business, mm. particularly because I think now with where the world is and the the focus on startups i think sometimes people neglect the that there's still these large businesses around and actually that you can learn from each other yes. um now what i want to get your take on is do we go there first or do we go to to your point the end and actually how you moved back into consulting well, i think i mean the two things are probably linked actually so okay. probably so um what actually happened was uh, i can't remember the dates but middle of 2009 you know, my business wound up and actually, I was at a real career crossroads, which is, you know, what do I want to do next? And by that stage, I had two children. So I had dependents. Life was a bit more serious. My wife wasn't working. So I knew I had to um, get back into something. But actually, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And, you know, as I said, I was emotionally rock bottom. And a very good friend of mine, actually a colleague from Deloitte, introduced me to one of her friends who ran a small consulting business. And he gave me a, a four-day-a-week, six-month con contracting opportunity at Richmond Borough Council. So I'd work four days a week. I lived the other side of Richmond Park. I'd run home from Richmond Borough Council. And it allowed me to contemplate what I really wanted to do. So, you know, I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity. And then out of the blue, I got a call. And I, I thought I wanted to go into industry. So actually, I thought I was done with consulting because I really, I always felt that consulting, I feel that consulting is one step away from the coalface. Until you've run your own business, it's very different to being a consultant. Until you've run your own business, you've owned that P&L. You know, that, that, that's very different to um, how it feels to be a consultant. And I thought, well, I want to do more of that. I enjoyed mm. that pressure. And then I got a call out of the blue from the founder CEO of a company called Quedis, which is what North Highland has now become, a gentleman called Paranjit Upal. Mm -hmm. And he, he rang me and said, I hear you, in, you don't know me. You may have heard of my business. I hear you in the market. Love to have a chat with you. And I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Mm. And I met him. And actually, from the first moment I met him, I, I was knew I was going to come and work here. And the, the reason for that is it was less to do with the business, but it was more to do with him. He was a guy that saw you for what you were and what you could bring rather than what you weren't and what you didn't bring. So even though I was a, a broken entrepreneur, failed entrepreneur, what he saw in me was the fact that I had that entrepreneurial experience. I'd tried to build a business in Silicon Valley. I was prepared to take risks. And he saw that. He could see the place for that in his business, and he valued, valued that in me. And that was incredibly powerful. And what I actually did was ended up joining Quedist lead something called Inorganic Growth, which was starting other businesses around their core consulting business to help them diversify. So it really played to the experience and strengths that I had. So it was a, it was a perfect fit. So that's kind of the, it kind of answers both of your questions. Yeah, and gives me plenty of things to dive into as well. I think let's, let's actually start with as much as you're happy to talk about that, a bit more into that, that leaving the business point, because I'm, I've said on previous episodes, and if not, it, it's not it's not secret that I 
I had an attempt at launching an estate agency business. Never launched an estate agency business. There's a reason there's millions of them. It's a bloody hard job. Um, and it got no, it didn't get anywhere near as far as Zogix did. But I do remember the that period afterwards where you have those doubts, you have those questions, yeah. those concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to your point, you and probably very similarly, you, you leave consulting and then there is a question, do I go back? Yes. Do you remember, particularly around that period, and it can be as long or as short as, as it was for you, any of the, maybe the questions you asked, maybe the counsel you sought from family and friends yeah. or resources, whatever it was that helped you to come to that landing and, and sort of get out the other side, if you like? I'm trying to think back. I mean, I think, as I said, I did have to, I had a couple of choices. So I had this dialogue with Quedis and Paramjit. A friend that had helped me get on my feet was looking to scale his business. And I had the opportunity of going into that with him. I didn't quite have the appetite to do another startup at that stage. I had a few other conversations going on. I also needed to provide some stability for my, my family and, and for my own well-being. So I had to make a decision. And I don't know if I'm going to answer your question very well here. But uh, I mean, there were, there, were, there were some basics, which is it allowed me to have a stable income. So in my startup for four years, I'd drawn very little money from it. So there was a financial consideration. I probably didn't come into Quedis thinking I'd still be here. It was, it's a good opportunity. Let's give it a go for a couple of years and, and see where it takes me. So it was as much about taking a step forward. And I think there come points in your career when you have to recognize what you are and what you do have and what you, what you aren't and what you don't have. So what I mean by that was my experience in that point in time was was primarily of being in professional services. So, and that allowed me to have credibility and command a certain level of earning. So sometimes you have to start, at a point you have to start trading on what you do have as skills and experience. You know, there's no way I could go and be a doctor or a teacher at that point in time. So there was a little bit about, I'd made my bed in my career and I had to lie on it. So it was a little bit about that as well. The, the opportunity obviously combined the best of both things, so professional services and being entrepreneurial in quite an early stage company. So I kind of felt like a confluence decision, which allowed me to you know, play to my strengths and, and be in an environment that would work for me. I don't know if that answers your question, Nick. Or... Well, it, I think it does. And we can come back to other bits as, yeah. as we go on. But I, it raises another question. And um, listeners of mine will know this is something I do often. It's yeah. One question leads to another. And it's almost back to the conversation we're having about your advice to entrepreneurs. Because yeah. the, as you've described it, Quedis was still a new business. There was still yeah, some yeah. risk for you. Yeah. You'd obviously come from running Zogix, yeah. which was a complete startup. Yeah. And you'd have, in that time, you'd had a family. And the reason I asked is I don't have children yet, but I do know a lot of people around my age, because I'm now at that age, where yeah. they have that tension of wanting to do something a bit more, let's say a bit more entrepreneurial. It doesn't have to be starting your own business, but just taking a bit more of a career risk, let's say. Mm, but mm. balancing that with... There and I'll say perceived, it's probably you know, in, in to them it's real that that pressure of I've now got a family to support. What if any bearing did that have on your decision, and how did you manage that pressure? I guess the, is it a pressure or is that just uh, the same as any other pressure you might have? Mm. I think I mean the big thing was it, it wasn't just my kids; it was my wife really, which is a, you know a startup where you, you you've done it. It puts not just a lot of pressure on you, but it, it, I mean, it, if it's a successful story and a successful journey, then it's, it's a brilliant thing. I mean, I know what Don went through, for example. You, you, it, it takes a lot. It puts a lot of pressure on you and those around you. And actually, it also felt a bit unreasonable to put my wife as well as my children through that again at that point in time. 
and personally, I also knew that I needed a bit of a, um, a, bit, a bit of breathing space. I, I needed a bit of stability. I needed a, a support environment around me in terms of a, an employer and a firm. So it, did, it didn't feel like um, it felt like a straightforward decision in terms of what I needed. So I think I think that I think that was it. Again, don't know if I'm getting to the nub of your question, but well, if I, if we take it to more of the others, so to your point around people yeah. come to you and you give yeah. them these seventy, yeah. Yeah. You know, your your list of seventy. Yeah. What if anything changes on that list? If the person coming to you is not doesn't really matter on age, but has no dependents, has a a partner earning, versus if they come to you and they do have kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I'm, I I'm, I'm going to talk to them about. I mean, I'm um, my kids are a bit older now, and you know I've, I've gathered a bit of experience on, on my life and with you know again you, you you share that so one knows what happens as your kids get older and you have the decisions to make around provision of the right home environment you have decisions around schooling and education there's also the other thing you know the other parents and the support they need so there's you can share the perspective on life stages that can only come from having lived through them so you're able to give them those perspectives everyone's circumstances are different I mean I was I have to support myself and my family. I don't have other sources of funding. And so I, th- I think you just have to talk through your story authentically and they can decide what to take from that and, and what to leave and relate it to their personal circumstances. And that's probably the best you can, you can do. So that's kind, of, that's kind of the way I approach it. But I do encourage people not to be timid. So I w- I'd say, you know, some of these things will work themselves out. Life happens. I do encourage people to make decisions and be bold. That's probably my guiding guiding yardstick. Brilliant. Well, I think let's move because I think you covered the the what you learn question to to a certain extent, and then to the quedis piece. In fact, on that because I think it might bring us nicely on to to where you've gone and how you've yeah. um, taken your career here. Yeah, Paramjit, you mentioned you. Yeah. you the way he approached the conversation with you was very much about what what you do have as opposed yeah. to what you don't. And part of this for anyone who's running a consulting firm or interviewing anyone, trying to get them to join, you know, it's a hugely competitive market out there. What was it about Pramjit and the way he approached you, that conversation, that opportunity, that stuck with you? What was it that you took from the way he was that you think yet yeah, you thought that was so effective? I I will emulate that or I want to see that in other consultants around me. Well, I think it was that he made you feel valued and he made you feel that you had something that was of value. And I think on the back of my startup, my self-esteem was probably pretty low. So that that was that really played to me at that point in time. There's a great phrase from, um, I think it's Brent Hoberman, who was the founder, one of the founders of lastminute.com with Martha Lane Fox. And he said, um, to be a successful entrepreneur, you need outrageous ambition and unyielding optimism. And I, I'd say that's what I saw in Paramjit. He mm. was a, he's a, he was a positive. He is a positive, you know, we can do it type of guy rather than a negative. We can't do it. He sees for, you know, and and um, you know that that came through as well. So you know, you believed in him. You believed in what he was trying to do. Yeah, he's able to paint a very exciting story of the the journey we're about to go on. And for me, that was that was very compelling. And there was something. Him and the broader Quedis environment, there was something that felt very comfortable for me from a values perspective and from a cultural perspective, and um, I, you know, I just felt like I would I would fit in and I could add to it. So it, it, I mean, it, it felt very natural at the time. Are you able to put your finger on what it was that made you feel comfortable about from a cultural perspective? There, yeah, yeah, I mean, culture and values. So I think um, I'm a massive believer. I mean, particularly coming out of my staff, trust and integrity, two of my core values. 
And in part of the interview process with Quedis, I actually asked Paramjit if I could meet all the leadership team and whether I could look at the books. And he wow. he opened all of that up to me. So I got I got a feeling for who I'd be working with and the financial sustainability of the business, which was very important to me based on where I'd come from. So that that came through in, in droves. And then just I, something I do and I encourage others to do is if you're interviewing somewhere, it's to walk down through the floors of the office building and just absorb the atmosphere and the environment and the culture. So I asked to do that as well. I went to one of the Quedis parties and I went and sat in the office and it was the energy, enthusiasm and the mission and purpose that I felt coming through, which was at that stage, it was the mantra was changing the way the world feels about consulting. And it was this drive to do things differently and be different. And for me, that was, it was very compelling. Some really great advice there on on how to assess a firm, because I think to your, they're not that common. I think particularly things like walking through the office. And I know, I know Dom's mentioned um, in his interview, gosh, over a year ago now, which amazes me around speaking to the leadership, but to your point, going, asking to see the books. And I, I guess just asking what you need to be comfortable, yeah. um, which yeah. is something I think people so often fail to do in the interview process. Well, I, I mean, my approach as an interview is a two-way thing. Mm. So there's no point in trying to sell to someone to get them in if they're then not going to be successful. So as a professional services leader, that can set your business back. You, you fill a seat and you waste time with an individual. They're not successful. You're not successful. So I believe in, in, in you know, if you're interviewing someone, it's, it's two-way. You split the time. It's as much about them fully understanding what they're getting themselves into as you trying to uh, attract them. And then if I'm interviewing here, I always walk them around the office and I point out the good things and I point out some of the the, the gaps or the the challenges that they might feel. So I'm very purposeful about doing that. And then what I find is that uh, gives people a greater chance of success when when they land and they come in with no false expectations. And thinking about that from the candidate side, what is it that you look for or maybe you ask that's slightly less orthodox you know do you i doubt you ask to walk around their house but is there anything like you went when you were going in you asked for these things that may be slightly uncommon is there anything that candidates get from when they're applying to to north island that's slightly different in terms of questions from me in the interview process or i'll let you take it so yeah that, that so why don't we take it there? We'll start there. Well, it's probably two, probably two things really. I mean, one. Um, so actually, going to the other point, I always encourage people to meet a cross section in our business. So if we're interviewing someone, I'll say, right, you might be meeting one of the executives for a first or second round interview, but then we also get some of our academy members, which are our grads, to potentially meet that person. So that's it. And I'm not sure every firm does that. So that's looking at cultural fit, but it's also giving the candidate an understanding of the type of talent we have and the type of talent we don't have. And it gives them a good feel for yeah, our culture and our environment. We're very, we're a very flat structure, non-hierarchical, a healthy disrespect for hierarchy. We do a lot of upward mentoring. We do a lot of upward challenge. So it's important that somebody picks that up. If they come in and they try to assert positional authority and they don't take others with them, then you know, this, isn't the, this isn't the place for them. So we try and bring that out in the interview process. I don't think it's unorthodox, but the thing I sort of I'm very interested in interviews is understanding the personal side of someone. So mm-hmm. you get all the career stuff through the CV. You can talk about what they've done, what they've achieved. But I love to learn about more about them as a person. So hobbies, interests, and particularly aspirations and dreams. So I, you know, I talk broadly about what you want for the next three, five, ten years from your both your career and your life, and, and trying to understand how that fits in. So it's quite a lot of dialogue around that side of things. 
I want to pick up on the, because as I promised, we will come back to hobbies. And yeah, I think be interested on some of the ones you do here in these interviews. Um, but the point around Upwards Challenge, I'd be interested to understand how you foster a culture that enables that. And what I what I mean is, you often hear, you know, we, we get Upwards Challenge and it's 360 feedback and it, it can be quite sterile because sometimes senior leadership are nervous of getting feedback, but equally junior members of the team, you know, if, if you went out to one of your academy members and said, how did I do in that meeting? Yeah. There's going to be a certain nervousness about telling the the person at the top that they, yeah. they maybe yeah. didn't do as well as they could have. I'm yeah. not saying you didn't, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. how how do you foster that culture? I mean, I, I, uh, I'm not going to take credit for it. So I inherited it. So we've always had that here. And what I've done is tried to maintain it and amplify it. And, and it's very real. So I got an email on Monday from one of our junior analysts being quite hard on a new training course. And she was clearly nervous about sending it to me. So she had checked whether it's the right thing to do. So the first thing I went back with was an acknowledgement to thank her for having the, the courage and the voice to speak up and send it. And actually, I went and saw her yesterday morning and made a point of doing that in person as well. So I think it's important that you do that. We have this phrase, a bit corny, but feedback is a gift. Everyone has the right to deliver feedback. It's up to you how you receive it and then what you do with that feedback. So we do actively encourage that. And then it's important that you acknowledge it. And then it's important that you respond to it. So we, we I mean, it's, it's, it's how we are. It's how I am. And we do sort of amplify it. So probably not getting to the core of your question, but it's, it's, it's just part of what we, what we are as a business and then my personal leadership philosophy. And I will, I mean, I'll stand up in front of the whole business and I will say, send me your thoughts, send me your feedback, and then I'll be purposeful about acknowledging it and doing something with it. Uh, and I'll respond to points. So we, we, we just encourage the open dialogue. How do you, you or your you know, others here, coach your team to, to your point, feedback's a gift. Everyone can give it. Yeah. It's how you receive it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Within that, there's a whole you know, there's a whole myriad of things around who's giving it, what the feedback is. How do you encourage people? Because this is equally applicable to others, other organisations, is to create a feedback culture and foster a feedback culture, but manage it so that it doesn't, you know, at its worst, just to send in people just giving you know whatever opinion they have about someone else's work, or keeping it as a positive as opposed to moving towards maybe a negative um, attribute. Um, yeah, good question. Let me think. It's about the systems you probably set up. So when someone joins North Highland, we have a training course called Our Way, which is about our history. Mm. It's about our culture. It's about our philosophy. It's about our values. And everyone gets to go through that. And I think that, well, I talked about the interview process. I think that's step one. And step two is they, they come in and we talk about this is, how, this is how it works here. And in that, we're very clear. We have core values around empowerment, uh, integrity, accountability, culture of care, so all, all of those things uh, come through. There's a big one on, our other big one is on client centricity, which is obviously the core of our business. So, so we talk about those things and what they mean. We spend two days explaining what those are, examples of what they mean in practice. So I think there's a little bit about setting those, those things. And then also we set a tone around, you know, what is our purpose and what is our mission and the pride we have in those things. So we have a, they are collective rallying points that everyone believes in and everyone protects. So I think if you've got those anchors, you've got your value set, you see leaders leading by example and demonstrating those things, and you've got an environment which keeps things aligned and it means it doesn't descend into this anarchy of, of negativity. 
So that's, that's, probably, that's probably my view of how it works here. That may not work everywhere, but that's probably our formula. We are a very energetic and positive culture. So there's a great, great story. Sir Clive Woodward took the English rugby team down to train with the Royal Marines. And they talked about how they categorize people into radiators and drains. So people put energy into a system and people that pull energy out of a system. And I think they, I think the story goes that they named four drains. He chopped them from the team and then we went on to win the World Cup six months later. So I, we kind of have that, that approach here. So we don't tolerate the drain mindset for too long and people can change. So, so I think, I think that's kind of the system we've set up and it seems to work. It keeps things in, in balance. And you mentioned around the junior analyst. Yeah. My understanding, and tell me if if my research is completely off here, is is you have a very young workforce, a yeah. highly millennial workforce. Yeah. If you wanted to, yeah. you know, use the fre- the sort of in vogue phrases. And given that culture, to your point, as as I understand, it, it's endured from Quedis. Yep. So time frame over the sort of early two thousands to here. Do you find, and take it as that feedback point, or take it more culturally? Do you find there is a difference in this generation, or is that something that is overplayed? I mean, the thing I notice is the mobility of the workforce. So I think um, I was probably at the end of a general. So my, I think my father's generation was probably career for life, employer for life. I was probably career for life, but change employers potentially. And I think um, this generation are lots of careers, lots of employers. And that's the thing I have to balance really, because I'm a, a big believer in, in, in loyalty and, and the, uh, what I noticed in this generation is, is the mobility in the workforce. And that's, I think that is a challenge for our industry to manage. So in professional services, you have to invest quite a lot to, or you're constantly investing in people to help them develop and grow. And how do you sort of almost get the ROI on that investment if a person is only with you for three to five years? Mm-hmm. And even when I was at Deloitte in the 90s, you know, attrition is 25%. So effectively below partner, your, your workforce is churning every three to four years. And I think that's that's more pronounced than acute now. So how do you... How do you balance that and build a sustainable business that, that grows and, and get a return on your investment? And I think that's, um, that is a challenge that comes with that generation for today's business leaders. How do you respond to that? How do you create that, a business that enables you to get the employee to get their value, you to get your return yeah. on investment yeah. and give them the best experience for two, three, four years they're with you? Yeah, I mean, we, we look at sort of distinct career chapters. So we sort of say, uh, some you know, t- classically there's, different chapters in our firm. It's actually four-year, three to four-year cycles. So we look at it on that basis. We are very focused on our high potential high performers and how do we retain them and keep them in the business for, for a bit longer. And the other thing we've done to balance it so the millennials understand what they're getting from us is my crude understanding, and I'm no expert, is millennials are very focused on skill acquisition. You know, my generation was more about like getting the professional stamp. And so we've broken down a lot of things uh, that were traditionally a level up into the skills you will acquire. So classic in consulting, you know, PMO roles, people don't often want to do that. But actually, if you break that down to the next level, the skills you acquire by doing a PMO role are stakeholder management, planning, risk management, communication skills. So we, we, we look at things at that level now and talk about all the skills you'll acquire through us, through a period of your career that will help you either here or elsewhere in your career. And we found that's an effective way of both attracting and retaining and motivating that generation. So that's a bit of a shift. Yeah, I, I really like that. And, and particularly the example you give, because I, in my early days, I did do, I did nine months of a PMO role. Well done, um, well done. And, you know, I, would I look back and say it was the most exciting role? Absolutely not. But 
is it the one that taught me the the most transferable skills? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yes. It, it almost in what you're saying, and and if I've if I've inferred wrong, tell me. But it almost feels like there's an element of having to sell that opportunity more than maybe you, to your point, the previous you used to have to to the previous generation. Yeah, I mean, we're we're also back to my point about recruitment. We're very transparent in the hiring process about what we offer and what we don't offer. So I think I think that you know comes back to trust, integrity, transparency, all of those things. That's how we operate. And I think there's there's a, you know if you sell a dream and they come in and that's not the reality, you're always going to have a a conflict. So. Um, we're not for everyone, but we are for a, a certain set set of people. And I think if you're clear about your proposition, then you get people in that understand what they're getting themselves into. And then one, once they're in, you need to sell. So it is it is it is what you promised and committed to deliver. So, yeah, I don't I don't like to o- oversell things, but I, I believe it's about setting expectations right up front, so you don't have that that challenge as you go. To that point around the sort of three four year paradigm and yeah. and the the feedback point as well. Do you? Is there a shift on the employee side or the team member side where I guess, you know, I imagine conversations I had with my, I, I knew them as advisors, but your yeah. career mentor, yeah. let's say, yeah. in your firm. And your goal was always to make partner until it wasn't. Yeah. 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 Do, you, do, do you find that now people are coming in much more openly saying, look, I, I want to do three or four years here, do the best for you and, and then move on? And if so, how do you manage that? Is that a different conversation to manage? Or Yeah, I'm not... Um... So, full transparency, I, most of my interviewing is done at the senior levels in our business. So we have a team that does a lot of the, the grad recruitment. So I probably don't hear what you're saying directly. I definitely don't hear people coming in and saying, this is the last job I want, or I'm here for life. And I, you know, I did hear some of that when I was at Deloitte. So I'm not, I, yeah, I think the dialogue has changed a little bit. And I think it's, um, I don't think that's a, a secret. I think we, we recognize that and the people coming in recognize that. And, that, and that's a good place to be. So I want to, and I, as I said, we'll we'll dive in and out of things. And I think that was a, a really interesting topic to dive into. I almost I want to pull us back to your point in that career journey and yeah. and your story, and go back to talk about how you got to where you are today. Because yeah. we've got to sure. you joining Quedis. Sure. Could you just tell me a bit about the intervening period? And sure, sure. So I've done. I mean, it's I've been here nearly ten years. And I've done a, a bunch of roles, so uh, everything from um, sort of client executive on some of our biggest accounts, running industry sectors, launching new businesses, running all of our propositions, go-to-market propositions. And then 2013, 2015, I launched a business in the US for North Ireland. And then after that, I was asked to run our UK business. So I was the managing director of uh, UK business. And then now I run the UK business in the Eastern Seaboard of the US. So and when I say run that, I have responsibility for all our, our client business, so revenue, gross margin, and also I'd say the health of the offices that I cover. So New York, Philadelphia, a bit of Charlotte, a bit of Atlanta, London. So it's quite a, it's quite a, a big and rounded job. So it's a great opportunity. What, and what I've found really is it may be my good fortune or it may be true for everyone, but I was given a piece of advice which was, get your head down, do a good job and focus, and then good things will flow from that. So I'm, I always think of my career as being quite accidental. And I'm, ne- I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm particularly ambitious, but good things have happened as a result of doing a good job and applying myself. I'm sort of, a, I describe myself as a paranoid business leader. Okay. And, and um, very sort of conscientious. And as a result, you know, I, I take accountability. I'm quite focused. I haven't always been successful, but the fact that I'm seen as someone that if I'm given something, I take it on and I try and make the best fist of it I can. That seems to have 
yielded good career opportunities for me. And I'd say North Highland, every two years, I kind of get a call from our, our CEO out of the blue and he says, I've got something else for you. <laughs> and it's, it's sort of the next next career step. So I've been very, very fortunate to get that. And, and yeah, that's taken, to me, taken me to where I am today. There's a lot of bits in there I want to pick up on, but I realized I missed, and it's a critical bit because it, it talks to your story and decision-making around cultural fit, particularly yes. as, you know, we obviously talked about Quedis. Yeah. Um, yeah. We inferred, but Quedis was acquired by North Highland. Correct. Yeah. Now, I'm interested for yourself, and only because I've talked to other guests where smaller businesses have been acquired by larger consultancies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be really interested, and this, it might be that there wasn't any for you or for the team, but on the concerns or questions you had around that cultural fit, because you've gone from a startup to yes. a small, yeah. nimble business to yeah. a joining what some might consider more of a larger business, larger yeah. corporate business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was there any tension and and how did you how did you work through that? Yeah. I mean we could spend a day talking about that in its own right. A few pointers really. It always amazes me how bad consultancies are eating their own dog food. So we advise clients on MA activity. We talk about how you need to protect the value in, in the bits of the businesses coming together. We talk about the change management. We sell that to our clients for hundreds of thousands of pounds, but we didn't do that to ourselves. Uh, and it, you know, it's it's, and I see that in other businesses. I was at Deloitte when they um, merged with the remnants of Anderson, and that was you know a train wreck. What I mean, there was a few a few bits in our dynamic here. So we were yeah, acquired in two thousand and twelve. It looked like a good marriage because actually North Highlands philosophy was they were a, they were a similar sized business sort of scaled in the US. They wanted to change the way the world thought about consulting. We had the same value sets. So on the surface of things, it looked good. I think, you know, the big things we underestimated, there's a huge difference between a consultancy in the US and a consultancy in the UK. Massive cultural differences. And even within the US, there's cultural differences. How, how so? I'll give you an example. So when I launched one of our managed services businesses in the US in 2013, what I found is I could have a pitch deck to, to sell managed services and I'd, I'd have to deliver the same slides differently in New York to Atlanta, so the south, to the west coast. And there's an etiquette and a protocol in BD meetings that if you get it wrong, you, you miss the mark. So I still remember one day I'd done a pitch in New York and Atlanta and I'd be quite sort of aggressive and forthright. And, and, and you know, in the Northeast, you can shoot straight. There's no pretense. In the South, there's always a bit of a hidden agenda. So a lot of passive aggressive behavior. On the West Coast, I went in and I was very sharp and aggressive. And the guy just put his hands behind his head, sat back in his chair and started laughing at me. And he said, you've been on the East Coast, haven't you? And I said, well, how can you tell? He said, we don't do things like that here. <laughs> and actually, the, he wanted um, he wanted some humor. He wanted a much more personal dialogue before we got into it. And actually, we closed we, we closed that, and we didn't close the stuff on the uh, East Coast. So I learned, you know, simple lessons like that. And also, business is done differently over there. So simple things like they sell in billable hours, not billable days, which is the UK market. So you've got different commercial... The labor laws are different, so you can hire and fire at two weeks' notice over there. It's very transactional. So you can, if you sell a piece of work, you can almost hire your team to deliver that piece of work, whereas obviously lead times in the UK are a lot longer. So the, the different markets, and then market entry is, is different. So if you want to build a consulting business in the UK, the way you do that is different to how you launch in the US. And I've seen firms try and fail to do it either way. So there's, 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 a, there's a lot of differences. And that's really interesting because I know a number of businesses who are, yeah. I know UK going across yeah. and yeah. there are a number within that who find it very challenging. Yeah. What are those key, you know, you've talked about that cultural side and some of those, uh, I guess, legis legislative sides. 
are there any other elements that people thinking about doing this for their business really should think about or get some serious advice on before making that step across to the US? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think you can underestimate the importance of having some sort of local leadership's the wrong word, but um, I think if you come and try and launch a, Lond- a business in London with pure US leadership, you'll find that difficult. And I think similarly, if you try and launch a business in the US with poor UK le- pure UK leadership, you'll find that difficult, but it's not as difficult as long as you understand the way they do business. And the reason for that is I feel in the UK, broad summary, in the UK, you are guilty until proven innocent. In the US, you're innocent until proven guilty. Mm. So in the US, they're prepared to give you a chance. So in the US, you need to you need to understand that and be a bit more, a bit bolder. Brits can be a bit self-effacing. Yep. And over there, you need to be a bit a bit bolder, think a bit bigger, a bit more positive, and actually you can do it. I think if you land that way in the UK, it doesn't work. So for me, having a blend of the local understanding and potentially a bit of the local culture in your team, so hybrid leadership teams, mm. I think, I think it's, it's really, really important. So that's an example. Interested actually on the management side. Yeah. From a, an internal perspective, yeah. how was that? And what were, what if any, were the culture shocks you found run, leading, a, I assume, a largely US team as opposed to a largely UK team? Well, it may be as much to do with our culture. So actually, I, we, we, we were talking about the, the merger with the acquisition by North Highland. So as I said, superficially, we were the same. But actually, when you dug into the businesses, there were some fundamental differences. So in the US, North Highland was primarily a high-end staff augmentation business uh, filled with a lot of people that finished their consulting careers, wanted to get off the road. Average age was late 40s. In the UK, where a lot of people starting their careers, average age was late 20s. So there were some very big differences in the workforce. And what I, what I found here is you have to be on your toes. As I've said, there's a lot of upwards challenge, which I enjoy and mm-hmm. invite. Where in the US, you can be more directive and people expect you to be more directive. Yeah. So there's a, there's a directive style in the US that I can't adopt in the UK. And that might be as much to do with the culture in our firm and the workforce in our firm as it is to do with um, the UK, US cultures more broadly. But it's, it's, it's very distinct to me. I can understand how you could switch between them. But you obviously run a business that spans both sides of the pond, yeah, if you like. Yeah, yeah. How do you manage your messaging or the, the organization's messaging when you do need to change something, deliver a message to the organization? Because to your point, you know, in the States, maybe you can say, we're doing this, guys. Over here, we've, we've got a different culture. And Yes, it's a, it's a very uh, astute question, Nick. So yeah, it is, a, it is a challenge. And back to my point about eating our own dog food and how you do change management in a, with a client. So here, there needs to be much more explanation of the why. There needs to be much more groundwork. There needs to be much more about what will that mean for, for me. And you need, you know, it is, the, it is the guilty until proven innocent. So you need to establish the case for change much more strongly and clearly in the UK than perhaps you need to do in the US where they're happy to take direction and there's more, okay, follow me, these are our orders, let's go take that hill. So there'll be inertia in the UK until you've established that case for change. Once you've got it, and if it's compelling, then the reaction is much more substantive. In In the US, I can find it a bit more superficial, but more instantaneous. And for anyone thinking, I'm thinking sort of, well, Anyone who wants to do that transition or maybe even yeah. spend some time over there, you've talked about some of those elements that are distinct, so sort of the directness and just that sales culture. Yeah. For anyone in the sort of junior grades who's thinking, I'll, I'll go and do six, 12 months out in the yeah. States or vice versa, yeah. Yeah. 
are there any things that are unique to that working in a consulting environment either way that you need to think about or is it the things you've sort of mentioned already yeah i mean sometimes it amazes me at how similar you know a day-to-day consulting job is uk and US. so actually when i was at deloitte i consulted for six months in silicon valley so i was out there so i did a bit of it then and i've, d- I've done a lot of it recently over the last five six years and it, it always amazes me that a um you know, an organizational transformation project here is pretty much the same as, as as one over there. So I don't think there are huge differences. I mean, again, it, there are cultural variances that probably mean how you engage with your client and achieve, if you're trying to drive change or transformation, how you achieve that. So you probably need to appreciate those things. But the nuts and bolts of consulting are pretty similar. I want to bring us back to you. You made the point around you're a pragmatic business leader and you've always followed the view that if you work hard, you do a good job, you'll, you'll get ahead. I also... Get, get on. Get on, sorry, get on. Yeah, yeah, um, on yeah. is different from ahead? Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. What is on? Just so. uh, your, your, your career will evolve and move forward. Ahead implies maybe a step up beyond others. And I did, you know, it's, it's, it's more opportunities will come to you if, if you do those things. It's, Perfect. It's, yeah. Well, let's use, let's use on. Okay. I'm interested in, into your point, sort of pragmatic and yeah. you made the, the point you know, you like to make sure everything's right yeah but then earlier you also said you know you're a you're a big risk taker yeah. yeah and you've also come from the that entrepreneurial environment where you've had the experience of being able to change things quickly yeah, yeah. do what you, you know make a decision one day change it another yeah. how did and this i know we touched on earlier but how did you either have to temper or decide on which of those entrepreneurial characteristics, if you like, to use during that journey? What was it that from your startup days helped you do a good job from a risk taker perspective? But what else was it that maybe you had to temper to be more pragmatic as a business leader? Yes, good good question. I mean, I think um, my colleagues will attest to this. Probably, you know, I can be quite fast and loose in the way I operate. Okay. Uh, and that might be as simple as complying with some of our corporate rules and <laughs> operational administration. I'm good at getting my timesheet in, but there's other bits where I'm, I could be, I can be more relaxed about uh, some of those pieces. And actually that, that probably comes a little bit from uh, me, but a little bit from my startup world where actually you can't afford to let those things get in the way. So there's a, there's a bit of that really, it's a bit of compliance and alignment. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a rule breaker, but I don't always comply. I'm not always the fastest to comply on a line. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's an element of that, which in a corporate environment, you do need to do that. And it's very difficult to hammer people for not submitting their timesheets if as a leader, for example, you've not done that. So I recognize the importance of leading by example. So I think that might, that might be one example. I mean, I think the, the things that I do bring from the startup world that are very powerful in the corporate environment, it is back to the uh, believing that you can do things. I was, again, when I left Deloitte, who was one of the partners, he said to me, if you believe and you focus, you will succeed. And I, I think that is so true. And I do believe in the outrageous ambition, unyielding optimism. If you bring those things together. Um, so we have a, you know, back to the millennial piece. One of the things I encourage is if someone does a piece of work and they think that piece of work is a repeatable offering and could turn into a business offering, I'll say, right, let's go build a business around it within our business. And we've got numerous examples of that. So I'm a big, and that comes from my entrepreneurial background. I'm a big believer in trying to see something that has value and and scalability and someone that wants to do it, put those two things together and giving them the the latitude and opportunity to do that. So that's a a big thing that I do bring from that sort of entrepreneurial environment. 
So there you go, a couple of examples. So I'm, uh, uh, well, I'm not, I won't use your words. I have a very dim view of a lot of policy and yeah. things you have to do. I say, I don't want to say we do, because, but has that ever caused a tension and how have you managed it? Because I'm sure there are others in the organization who think differently. Yes. So attention because I don't believe in what we're doing or I'm not complying or others aren't complying or... You take your favorite. There's three great ones there. So I will... Yeah. I mean, I think you... Um, look, nothing... No, I mean, nothing's perfect in any business. But you, as long as the, the pros outweigh the cons and you're, you know, you, 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 it's your choice to operate and be where you are. But there are certain things that come with that as a as a necessity of that business being effective, and I think you you have to accept those even even if you think I don't like doing this or I don't want to do this or I don't see the need to do that. So there are rules to any game, and I, I do I do believe in as I say leading by example. So I think if if we've got a problem with you know classic thing we've got use Salesforce, not all our opportunities are always in there. It gives you a false view of your your soft backlog, your opportunity, and that can lead to decisions around hiring. Or So uh, it's really important that that's up to date and the executives have to lead by example on that. And we have a weekly drumbeat around those types of things. So, you know, it's critical. It's business critical. People follow leaders, you know, so you, you have to keep, keep driving that message. And then there are some other things which I'm happy to let go because I think they're less, they're less important in the scheme of things. And then I, I will take accountability for the slackness around it and I'll carry the can if that's the message I've delivered to the business. And how do you foster, because you made the point around within that, you, yeah. know, you encourage team members where if they've they've sold something repeatable, yeah. let's, yeah. let's build a practice. Yeah. How do you encourage and develop that culture of entrepreneurialism? Yeah. But in a way, to your point, in a way that is consistent with the firm's values and consistent with the way the firm wants to operate. Yeah. I'll get, I'm going to get philosophical on you. Go for it. So um, my auntie, Auntie Christine, she's 80. So about 30 years ago, she was sort of musing on life. And I was sort of saying, well, how does, how does life happen? How does it all pan out? And she gave me a piece of advice, which was, uh, Charles, go out and, and write your own history. And sort of that mantra, write your own history, I've got a post-it above my desk. And I, I love that concept of being able to write your own story. And it's, it's up to you to do that. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. You determine that. And I believe as leaders, you, you write chapters in your organization's story. And your organization's story will outlive you if you're successful. It may not if you're not successful. So when I took over London Leadership, I wanted to write a chapter and have a legacy for me and my leadership team. So we created a new vision for the business, which was to create over four years, a period of truly remarkable personal and professional growth for everyone in the business. So we wanted to create this experience that was the benchmark for them personally and professionally for the rest of their lives and careers. And it was something that I enjoyed at Deloitte for a couple of years under a leader called David Owen. I, I knew the, the power and value of that as something I aspired to do. And, and to give us a guiding mantra, we stole from Edmund Hillary. So when he came off Everest, he had this phrase, he was asked the question about, have you always been an extraordinary man? And he said, people don't decide to be extraordinary. They decide to do extraordinary things. And you'll see as you come into our office on the wall, it says daring to do the extraordinary. So to, to your question, our guiding mantra as a leadership team was, we are daring to do the extraordinary, which meant taking risks and pushing yourselves collectively and individually and being bold and being brilliant in those things and not being afraid to make mistakes, but don't make the same mistake twice, so learn as you go. And we were so deliberate about executing on that, and we have been. So we, 
it would be, we started a new business here called Sparks Grove. We allowed 15 people to go off on sabbaticals and funded it, which is the personal growth. We sent people off to do MBAs. There are 25 people in 2017 that I gave huge stretch roles to in the business to try and grow them professionally. So it was, it was a very purposeful and overt philosophy. So that, that, I mean, that's how we've sort of, we've, we've driven what you spoke about. And did that, because what you've described there sounds very bold. Yeah. Were there any tensions within the broader corporate structure that London was doing something so different or so new? If so, how did you have to manage that to yeah. Yeah. enable yeah. it to happen? Yeah. Uh, yes, there were, but we're a commercial business and results speak for themselves. So along with that vision and the people-focused agenda, we grew significantly as a business and we grew profitability more than revenue. And those results give you a platform to stand on to continue to do what you want to do. If we hadn't had that, it would have been harder. But yeah, we've had um, significant double-digit growth for the last three years. We've doubled the size of the business over the last four and a half years. And, and um, you know, that's irrefutable. Mm. And that enables you to push your agenda. Coming to yourself, thanks. I really liked um, your auntie's advice around writing your own history yeah. and your, yeah. your metaphor around it, the chapters. Yeah, yeah. From a from a personal career perspective, yeah. um, or just a personal life perspective, how do you approach that? Do you have a do you plan these chapters? Do you plan that book, or yeah. is it more, Interesting. more organic? Interesting. So I think, as I said to you earlier, my, so my career has been quite accidental, and I, I say my my life is a, as well a little bit, and I'm I'm good with that. I'm quite comfortable with that. I like the unexpected, and I'm, as I said, I'm happy to take the risks. I'm a big. I study. I sort of study life. I went to. I was fortunate enough to go to Harvard Business School a couple of years ago to do a leading professional services firm course. And the last two days of it, all about life stages. And they spoke about in your business, the, the, the life stages people will be going through. And one of the things I'm enjoying at the moment is working with the people who are in the life stage ahead of me, their legacy phase in their 50s, and their careers are coming to, a, or their careers are moving into a different stage. There's quite often a lot going on in their home life in terms of kids leaving home. And observing that and helping them go through that, and you know that's, what, that's my next life stage, so trying to figure out what that might mean for me. So I do do I do do a lot of sort of that. So whilst my career in life is quite accidental, I'm, I, I try to learn from others that are either, well, particularly, uh, you know, ahead of me and say, well, what, what does that feel like? What do you have to deal with? What are the questions you ask yourself? And I, I both well, I enjoy that. Actually. I find it fascinating. And we do, yeah, we're very purposeful. There are four generations in the workforce at the moment. I'm very purposeful about trying to tune into their different agendas and trying to enable what, you know, what they're trying to achieve and perhaps struggling with both both personally and professionally. So um, it's one of the things I look at. And I do, and I guess the to your point around the your career has been a series of fortuitous accidents. Yeah, um, I like that. <laughs> I assume there's, an, you know, an accident is something happens. Yeah. Um, to your point around feedback, yeah. anyone can give, but it's about what you do when you receive. Correct. So if you take the same with the accident, yeah. you know, stuff happens, but yeah. it's how you, what you decide to do with it and how you, Correct. how you take it forwards yeah. have there been um particularly with your journey with quedis and north highland any of those inflection points or, or what questions have you asked yourself when to your point your boss has called you up and said right charles i've got another role for you over yeah. here yeah yeah how yeah. have you decided or what questions have you asked that yourself or others to ensure it's the right role for you yeah i mean I, what i do know is i like to i've kind of got wanderlust so i know i do know i like to try different things and grow. I, I love the feeling of being stretched and, and sort of learning and growing and almost the, the fear of the unknown and taking on something that you don't know how to do. So that exhilarates me. I like, I like having an adrenaline buzz. And if I get too comfortable, 
no, that doesn't work for me. So, so generally when I get one of those calls, even before he's told me what it is, I know I'm likely to be up for it because that's, that's what I like doing. So I, that's part of it. I think, again, it's back to the, the philosopher at the outset, which is, you know, what, what's the downside? What have I got to lose? And what will I, what will I gain from this as a minimum that's going to allow me to go, go forward? And I have a big, I mean, I've got a big, big thing at the moment that I'm grappling with, which is the scale of my business leadership role, UK, US, the time zones, the travel, the number of people, the revenue, the margin, the clients. It's taking me away from serving clients and direct, you know, running my little client portfolio that I have at the moment, which is my own client group. And I, my philosophy about consulting is you should always have your clients and that's where it happens. But I'm struggling to do either well. So I've got a decision to make about where my focus should be. I'm going to make that decision in March. And, and the way I'm weighing that up is if I do course A, what will I get from that? If I do course B, what will I get from that? And what's the, what's the downside? So I'm, go, I'm going through that process at the moment. That hits on, a, on an interesting point, actually, around that leadership growth, because yeah. through the journey we've talked about, you've gone from a startup, from yeah. a few of you to, to where you are now managing yeah. a business with people on both sides of the Atlantic. From your experience, or now those underneath you, what have been those biggest step changes as a business leader? So, you know, for example, you hear sometimes people say it's going from 10 people to 100 people. Or yes. What were the those biggest uh, inflection points where you thought, right, I have to step up my game. I have yeah. to shift. Yeah, great question, great question, and they are they they are you know they are really pronounced. So, I think one was when I was first given my opportunity to run quite a significant business unit UK and US. So, starting to operate internationally, and I realised that requires a whole set of different commitments and and communication, and you know you're not in the office with everyone, your team's not in one place. So that, mm. so that that was a big one for me. And then when I was first asked to take on the, the London office and run this as a business, mm. I hadn't really been trained to do that. And it meant managing and leading some people that were senior to me. So it was quite a difficult thing. But I sort of took it on one week. And then the following week, the market crashed and our bench spiked. And I suddenly realized that was on my shoulders. And I wouldn't say I understood fully how our business worked and what levers to pull. And what, what I did was I grabbed a couple of people here. We, we set up a room and we decomposed the business around the walls of the room and we learned how it worked. And over six weeks, we dug ourselves out of that hole. And then we've been on this incredible growth journey ever since. And, and for me, that was one of my biggest, biggest growth points. And I, you know, I felt I had sleepless nights and when I was waking up the night sweating, thinking, well, this is on me. It's not on anyone else. I, I own this. And for me, that, that pressure really drove performance in me and a depth of thinking in me that, that had a huge impact on the business and luckily worked out well. So it's those sort of pressure cooker environments that, um, that tend to get a response. So that six-week period yeah. to, to the way you described it, of that led to the growth you've, yeah. you, you've had now. What was that? You, know, you say deconstruct it, but yeah. actually how did you approach that and what at a, a sort of fundamentals level, if you like, were the conclusions that led you to be able to yeah. to achieve this growth. Yeah, I mean, we went back to basics. So actually, a, a professional services business is pretty simple. So you, you, you need you know, clients, you need a product to sell to your clients. In fact, that was the biggest learning I had from my startup is any business is just about product and customers. If you focus on those two things and you have a product that customers want to buy and you can produce that for less than they buy it for, you've got the basics of a business. So, you know, I went back to basics and, and tried to understand exactly what product we had. So what were the skills we had, what were the offerings we had. I then looked at our client base. And I looked at the match between those two things. I learned a lot about buying cycles. I looked a lot at conversion rates and pipeline velocity. 
so I, I tried to look at as many leading indicators as I could. So, you know, what do I need to have in a, a pipeline of opportunities three months out to make sure I'm delivering my revenue today? And then I looked at collecting cash and invoicing and how we were doing those types of things. So really the basics of what's our product? What's the market buying? How do we make sure we're originating enough of that opportunity early enough to, to, to make sure I can keep our people busy. And we, we plotted all that out and we started marrying it up and then we built a governance structure around it to drive that, that effectively. And it still exists today. In fact, I'll show you on the way out. It still exists today in terms of we've got an operation center yeah. and we run the business from that. I'm excited to see it. Because yeah. I think that, and I don't think we're going to have time to dig in too much, but what I, I, I understand from what you've just highlighted is that is a, is a real focus on on that sales side of the business. Yeah. Because I think I speak to a lot of consulting firms yeah. and there's somewhere sales is still seen as a bit dirty. Yeah, ab absolutely opposite here. So we learned um, uh, my predecessor, uh, a gentleman called Tony Ducey, his, you know, there's many, many good things he did, but probably his biggest legacy was he turned us from a business that was himself and a guy called Ben Grinnell. He they turned us from a business that had a dependence on five or six people for selling to every single person in the business. So we've got over 300 salespeople. And even our analysts want to sell. And it's, it's really powerful. And then we run it very tightly. So every week, Monday afternoon, I do a, a sales meeting and I know exactly three to six months out what my pipeline looks like and based on velocity and conversion rates. I've now got four years of data. I know exactly what revenue that is going to manifest and well, when. And that gives me enough time to be able to uh, put the pedal down from a sales perspective or, or, or ease up because we've got too much demand and can't surface it. So we're, we're able to do that now. Fantastic. And I just want to check when you said 300 salespeople, you're talking your consulting team are salespeople as well. Is I'd that say what you every mean? client service person we have is a salesperson. Sales. So these are there. That's, you know, we are 300 uh, consulting people in London. Yeah. All of them sell. How do you build that foundation? And the reason I ask is that. For quite a few firms, sales is seen as a sort of senior task. So, you know, yeah, you get to yeah, a certain level. Yeah, and yeah. How, how do you build that in? And I think particularly help those who maybe have come from environments where yeah. they weren't seen as salespeople yeah. or they don't see themselves as salespeople. Yeah. So, again, my philosophy is everyone has something of value to someone else. So our sales model is based on relationships and expertise. Most people can either build a relationship or have a piece of expertise or insight that has value. Mm -hmm. And we have a team-based sales environment. So the way we're incentivized is to sell in teams. So what you will say to- what is that? Sorry, what is, I've not heard that before. So what, what, what that will mean is you're not, you're never selling on your own. So an example would be uh, an analyst that comes in from university, goes out, they'll be working on a client environment, mm -hmm. they'll be working with clients, they'll be building a relationship with that client. So we'll expect them to maintain that relationship and listen to what the client has to say. And if the client says, oh, we've got a problem over here with uh, this piece of digital work, they'll bring in the expert from our firm for that conversation. So that's kind of the relationship type activity that anyone can do. Alternatively, you may have, we may hire a technology graduate who has uh, a lot of experience in agile delivery or coding or data analytics. So they've got some expertise from their degree that they can share with a client in a conversation that might lead to opportunities. So we believe that everyone has something on either side of that equation that can lead to opportunities. And the expectation isn't that they'll close a million pound deal on their own. It's the expectation, in fact, the overt expectation is that they'll bring in others to work with them to help shape and close opportunities. And it's really powerful. And how do you, so I think that that definitely answers the, the how you encourage people and train them in it. How do you, and it might be this is something you filter out at interview, but 
how do you help people understand that's how you do it when they've come from a world where they don't see themselves as a salesperson? Yeah, we don't, we don't seem to have much of that. My experience is most people in our business want to sell or want to know how to sell. They enjoy doing it. So we don't, I don't bump up against that challenge. I'm very unfortunate. Maybe you are. And again, it's, I think it's the, cult, it's the culture you set. It's how you enable people to do it and demystify it. Uh, we have some very good sales training uh, that, that can break it down to something that's quite process driven and quite methodological. Uh, it's not uh, methodological. It's not, it's not a secret and mysterious thing. So there's, there's tools we arm people with and we support people to learn how to do it. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a brilliant thing when you see a junior person either bring in an opportunity or even close a piece of work, you know, they're so proud, their face lights up and it, it's great for us and great for them. Brilliant. And so I said right back at the start, we might come back to it. And I do, yeah. I do want to touch on it, which is yeah. your hobbies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the reason for this is, I mean, firstly, you've done some amazing things, but also how busy your role is, how much you've got on. And almost to our conversation way back at the start about, um, about the Arctic, sorry. I think in our industry, it, you know, people know it's long hours, it's hard, it, it can be hard projects, mm. and sometimes find it hard to make time for hobbies. Now you've done, and I assume the Arctic is no different, you, you've done a number of things that require quite a bit of training. You know, it's not like my walk into Snowdon where I needed a trip to the Cotswold shop and then I could walk up, up the mountain. You, you presumably have had to put a ton of training in for this. How do you balance these personal endeavors with the career you have here and the demands you have at North Highland to, to enable you to do both? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I probably don't have the answer for you. And I was in, I was doing a workshop with a senior client leadership team on Tuesday afternoon. And I got asked the same question and I realized, you know, again, it's possibly back to the accidental thing. My life kind of happens and it fits together. I think, you know, if I, if I was to look at a few things, I have a supportive family. It's, it's very important to me, but my wife understands that I have a demanding job and that, you know, the I could choose a less demanding job, but there's benefits of doing a demanding job. She also recognizes the importance of some adventure in my life. I had a female executive here came and approached me last year and she wanted to take a sabbatical. And I said, sure, you know, what would you want to do and, and why? And her phrase was she wanted to do more of the things that made her her. She said, I want to do more of the things that make me me. It really struck with me that as it's beyond consulting, but as human beings, you need to, you need to learn about who you are and what is the essence of you? And then you need to feed that. Wait, we don't need to. I think you, you you should feed that because that makes you a better person for you and a better person for those around you. Mm -hmm. And I believe in our business, if I do that and I enable people to do that, we'll get a better, a better person in the organization. So the, the firm is quite flexible. My family is quite flexible, but I also think it's really important that you, you only get one life. I think it's really important that you feed the essence of who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that does change as you go through life because it makes you uh, better as a strong, it makes you a uh, potentially a better, better person. I mean, if you don't do those things, you become miserable, yeah. you diminish, it makes you a bigger person and that's, that's good for everyone, including yourself. So, but, so a, bit, a bit about that. I mean, yeah, the firm supports me, my wife supports me. Uh, my kids are pretty good. They are complaining about the fact I'm away next week. It's about finding balance. So I was in New York and Philadelphia last week. I took my kids with me, it's half term. Mm. They've always been saying they want to come with me. So I did half business, half pleasure. I think those things are important and it isn't forever. So I think, I mean, I think that that's the other thing is having perspective on, you know, you, you won't have the opportunity to operate at this pace of career forever and you won't be able to do that. 
So you have to see it as a, as, as a chapter and say, so actually, in this chapter, I'm going to be right on my straps, both personally and professionally, but I want to be, and I can cope with that, and it won't be forever, and make the most of it. So again, probably not as specific as you'd like, but that's that's kind of how I operate. No, and I, re I really like the why and the, the how you approach that. I think I'm going to ask it, and it might be to your to, to what you're saying about the accidental element. You just you make it fit, but I particularly around. Let's let's take one of your previous challenges. So you ran the marathon to stable. Well, I'm going to butcher the um, pronunciation, Fine. but marathon to stables, cute, you know, one of the world's toughest foot races. Yeah. And I know from you know I, I have family members who have done the marathon, the yeah. London marathon, yeah. and then just there is a huge amount of training. Let's say so. I'm going to ask how you, you built that in from a really practical perspective. Yeah. And the reason is, like I say, I, you know, I've met people who, I'll always remember one colleague a long, long time ago who yeah. loved playing rugby, but yeah. gave it up because yeah. of consulting. Yeah. And to your point, I'm a big believer, like you say, that you need you need to find what sets you, you yeah. alight. Yeah. How did you, because I think it'd be a useful example for others, how did you make that time for, you know, getting the miles in which just, there's no way you can not, it takes yeah. hours. Yeah while delivering yeah. the role you had. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, I mean, I mean, people will listen to this and they'll laugh at me, but I do think it's about your, your sort of, your, you know, your, how your life pieces together. So I used to play a load of rugby, played for the Oxford All Blacks, split my head open, ended up, I was at Deloitte, had to go and do a pitch to a client with stitches in my head and half my head shaved. <laughs> and that was the end of my rugby career. And you, you, I sort of realised at that point in time that the two things didn't fit together very well. Marathon des Sables, I was working at Deloitte. I was program managing Europe's largest telecommunications procurement. It's a massive project based in Bath. The hotel we were staying in was 12 miles from the client site. So quite simply, I ran to and from the client site every day and it worked perfectly. And I think it, you have to look at how the, the pieces fit together. And when, you know, when my kids were young, actually I had them when I was doing my startup. So I had more time at home, which was good. But I couldn't bring up young children, do big adventures, run a business. And you have to you have to decide on how you're going to prioritize your time. And then things perhaps when my kids are getting older now, so I have a bit more time and I'm able to train a bit more and do some other things. Uh, so I, I think you've got to recognize and balance what your priorities are, where you are. And it, it does change and flex, and you have to fit the jigsaw together. I'm not a again, what type of person you are. I won't, I'm not a, I can't sit on the sofa and watch TV. I, I watch loads of sport, but I can't, I tend to do that when I'm sitting on a rowing machine or something, but I can't, I'm not a, in my evenings, I can't sit still. So I think you have to, I, I make the most of my time. I don't think it'll be a long one, but I'm running 12 miles to and from work. And I live in Bath now. So yeah. I also know that not only is it 12 miles, but there is, you can't but help go down one side and come back the other. It doesn't matter where you are. So you've got 12 miles uphill. Yeah. When you woke up at, let's call it four or five in the morning to do that, and it was pouring with rain outside, what was that self-talk? What was it that kept you going for however long it was to run up those hills in Bath? Yeah. So actually the other, uh, I have a huge fear of failure. So that drives a lot of who I am and what I do. And uh, whether that is uh, an adventure I'm planning, whether it's a responsibility and accountability in business that is inside me and it's very pronounced so you know i'd wake up on a cold wet morning and i'd think i've only got four weeks until i'm doing this thing and that would compel me to do it and it's that it's that simple a different story for another day but i did run into a tree one night <laughs> uh, running back from the client site ended up in a and e uh, with a split cornea but i'll tell you that another time wow so, so um, you've had quite a few yeah, yeah, head injuries by the yeah. sounds of it i would love to keep going there but i'm very conscious of your time and and our time together is coming towards an end so i've just got two last questions sure. for you and these 
These are ones that I, I ask all my guests because I like both the similarities and the difference. So the first one is, is about books. So I'm an avid reader of business books, self-improvement books, as I know a number of my listeners are. It's worth saying, that's me. It might not be you. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm really interested in, you know, we've talked about all the various chapters and do take this question as broadly as you want, is what are the books or book that you find yourself gifting or recommending most to people? Yeah, I mean, it's, that's pretty simple. So it's not very exciting, but the first 90 days. So effectively, it talks about what you should do when you're starting a new role or a new job. And I think that is, you know, first impressions are key. So that that it's a, it's a very good book because actually... You can read it as a book, but it's also a bit of a self-help guide. There's, there's mm. tick boxes at the end of the chapters. So I quite often share that with clients who are moving jobs or roles or, or, or people from here. So it's not perhaps not as exciting as you'd expect, but that that's one I do proactively do. And is that for anyone, regardless of whether they're just starting a job or, or sorry, let's say just starting as a graduate or just starting as a you know, senior Yeah, manager. I mean, I, there, there are bits in it for everyone. Um, and it's, I think it's really useful about understanding how to get off on the right foot. Yes. So, so that's the, I will broaden this just because I'm curious if there's not, uh, we can, we can park it, but we've obviously touched on some of the more philosophical elements, um, and your sort of life view. Is there any, are there any books or resources that you find yourself recommending on that side? So maybe away from the, the sort of direct tangible career implications. I'll I'll answer that probably not. In a, in a direct way, so there's there's two things I use a lot. One is Get Abstract, so it's a it's a it's a way of cheating to read books. So it's uh, it boils business books down into five pages, so you can read a business book in ten minutes. Okay, that's an app or some, something. Yeah, yeah, phone, yeah, it? yeah okay. it's a, So I, I use that a lot. Um, most recently, I've read something called The Inspiration Code, which is about how anyone can inspire someone else and the productivity benefits that come with that, and they're significant. Uh, so that, that's really powerful. And then I'm a big reader of Harvard Business Review. So, and in there you get a blend of hardcore business articles and and, and, and more philosophical leadership leadership type articles. So mm. I, I look at that. So those are, those are probably the two things I read. I mean, there isn't on a sort of a broader life philosophy scale, there isn't any book so much. What I do have is I write down, I collect people's wisdom. So I'm actually a bit of a fraud. Most of what I've done has been done with someone else. <laughs> but I collect people's wisdom and I have a list at home of sort of phrases or bits of wisdom that I've heard that have resonated with me. And I, I use that as a lot as a, a reference point. So it's like my aunties, you know, go out and write your own history, create your own history. That's that's more what I use as my my guide and what I share with people. So and I don't usually jump in at this question, but I, that's got me really curious. So just talk me through that. You So you gather, if you hear something like your auntie's advice, you, do you have a book at home? To, where do you collect this? Uh, I have lots of pieces of paper with bits of blue tack uh, by my desk and on the side of my filing cabinet with all this written on. And it probably goes back 15, 20 years. And I've written out some things that my father told me. So it's just a, it's a collection of things. And yeah, I, I, I use that to help myself and have others. And remind me of what it helps me... Um, ground myself and then complete the way I operate. If I feel a bit out of sorts, I'll read it and I think actually, no, those those two bits I need to do more of because it helped me do this. So it's quite it's quite powerful. And we 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 won't go through all of them, but you've obviously mentioned your aunties. What are the if there was a top two or three, are there any other big ones that you find yourself going back well, to? Well, I, I mean, actually, I've quoted a couple of them. So the Deloitte partner said, you know, if you, if you believe and if you focus, you will succeed. And, and actually, I found that to be totally true. 
And then my auntie's philosophy is a big one. I talked about the piece about Sir Clive Woodham, and it's things like that that yeah. I've collected as I've gone through. Edmund Henry one came from there. So there's, yeah, there's bits and pieces out there. Fantastic. Well, maybe on our on our tour back to the ops room, we can pop by your desk. I'd, lo I'd love to see that. Uh, and so the very last question, and this is as much a chance for you to recap on what we've talked about as it is yeah. to, to give you know, something new or something different if you want to. And that is, it's a three-parter. You have three people in front of you and you can give one piece of advice to each. Those three people are different chapters in their lives. And broadly, and this is, is my parlance, so adjust it for yourself if it works better, is one of them is just starting their career. So they may be either leaving university or just starting in your academy, let's say. The second one I would call a, let's say I would know as a manager level from your time at Deloitte. So ooh, six to eight years in. Mm, um, mm, mm. And then the final one is somebody who's approaching what I would commonly know as partner. So somebody who is approaching that, that equity position or that senior leadership position where they're making, I guess, more of a commitment to that. Yeah. That route. And yeah. the, the, the question is very simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Yeah, the, I mean, this is going to make me sound very old school. So the, with the, the first person, so that person may be starting out on their career, I often think about the advice I'll give to my children. So they're 12 and 9, so a bit, bit earlier in life. But I do believe in the value of getting a, um, a base set of skills, transferable skills, or a professional qualification. And I think it, it's back to my experience. And I I always think that there's value, and this is going to sound dreadfully old school, but you look at the number of CEOs in the FTSE 250 that have trained as accountants. And I think particularly if you want to be a business leader, understanding the um, commercial and financial side of a business, I think that's re really important. So it, it will sound boring, but if my kids said to me, what do you, I, I would recommend, you know, I'd advise my kids if they said, what do you want, what should I do? I would possibly go and say train as an accountant and then use that as a, a base skill. So not, it, not a surveyor. It sounds not a surveyor. It sounds dreadfully dull, but I, I think there's something in um, try, trying to acquire a base base set of skills and some experience and expertise that, that probably has some value and could be a foundation for you. I think, and, and you use the word for the person in the middle. I think that is a big career crossroads, and it's about it is about commitment. You use that for the third category person, but I think you have to decide: am, am I committed to this? and go forward, or, or am I not? Because it can quite often be a bit of a, a gap to cross and a bit of a desert. And I, I think there's a, there's a piece around that. And also giving them line of sight to where it, how it might unfold and where it might lead to. So you can get some people to talk about their Because quite often at that point in time, you can't, you can't see light at the end of the tunnel. So helping people understand that. So I think it's a piece around that. And then the person who is clearly committed, who's near the inequity. I mean, what advice would I give them? Probably don't have an answer to that question. It's a difficult one. I mean, I think you, you again, we're a commercial business. So I think don't at the importance of building your own sustainable book of business, uh, building some followership, building some people beneath you that can help you be successful and you're helping them be successful. I think at that level, you're more dependent on others for your success than you are yourself. So I think the importance of teaming is, uh, teaming is really important. So potentially something around that. Brilliant. Well, I think that is a really nice place for us to finish, Charles. So thank you so much for today. Some really interesting topics we covered and some some great chapters of your life. I love that's that's the metaphor I'm going to take away. For anyone who who wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about North Highland, mm -hmm. where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? I don't know if you I mean you can get my email address, they can ping me on LinkedIn, they can look at our website. I mean I'm pretty relaxed and open. So yeah. 
I don't know if you want to give email addresses. Yes, well, or, I will. Or um, you said something out afterwards, but yeah. So what I'll do is I'll put all of that in the show notes. Fine. So if you're happy to get yeah. direct emails, I'll put those in the show yeah. notes. Yeah, um, and I can fire it at the correct people, or they can have a chat with me. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Charles, thank you very much. This has been great. Thanks, um, Nick. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your weekend, and good luck. Good luck for your trip. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cheerio. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.